your uh, uh, Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 19 through 30. And the Word of God says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, uh, because as a son with his father, he has served, me, served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go, go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you uh, Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you, will, uh, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you, you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. This is the word of God. Just uh, remain standing for a moment, and we'll pray. Fathers, we open your word this morning, Father. We, we pray that you would just seed it deep into our hearts, Father that we would have attentive ears and attentive heart to just know who you are and what you have to say to us this morning. So, Father, again, just bless your word. Bless the, uh, the lips of the pastor this morning as he preaches your word, Father. Just uh, allow him to express your heart toward your people as he preaches this message this morning. In your son's name, amen. amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> it's good to be here this morning. Um, I think this mic is a little loud, Jamie, so if you could just lower it a little bit. Thanks. Getting some feedback. Um, negative feedback. <laughs> this is a dumb joke. Sorry. Um, trunk or treats coming up. You heard about that already. We need more cars. So if you have a car and you want to decorate it, um, just sign, your, sign yourself up on the board in the back. If you don't have a car and you still want to help out, we need other people doing stuff, so you can sign up too, but just really exciting time, and I hope that you're enjoying um, the Lord's Day so far and being gathered with Christ's church. Um, it's so exciting to do this. Um, as, a, as a new church, um, it's our desire to, to live life together in small groups. We have small groups on Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings um, right here in the church. It's our desire to share our faith with people, um, to live out the spiritual life together, and um, I hope that you're encouraged and that you're um, just finding this church to be your home and to, um, to be encouraged by God's word. We also want to live on mission together, right? That we know that there are lost people, um, people lost in their sin that are wearing the baggage of that sin, that need to come to Christ, to faith in Christ, to repent of that, to turn, to, to receive the life that Jesus provides. So that's the message that we bear if you know Jesus this morning. And if you don't know him this morning, I hope that by the end of the service that you do, that you understand who he is and how wonderful he is. Um, so thank you all for, for being here this morning. Um, I have a, at home, we have this cabinet um, that's kind of, if any of, any of you have been to our house, there's this little nook um, in our kit, off to our dining room. And it's a nice little pleasant place to be. There's a big window in it. And we have this little cabinet in there. And there's a big drawer on the top of it. And that drawer is our junk drawer. You guys have a junk drawer? Right, okay. A few of them, right? Every drawer is my junk drawer. Um, so we have, a, we have a junk drawer, and um, like I said, I bet most of us have one of those too. Um, you know a person's personality based on the organization of their junk drawers. Like if you open someone's junk drawer and it doesn't look like a junk drawer, then th that person's got maybe some type A issues going on. But um, our drawer looks like a junk drawer. You're going to find in it markers and screwdrivers and tape and pennies and those little circle batteries that no one ever uses or needs. But we throw them in there, and that's our junk drawer. Um, I wonder if, we, we, um, if I asked all of you to write down on a piece of paper some of the contents of your junk drawer, how they would compare, and maybe some unique things that 
you might have in yours that we couldn't mention in public. Um, <laughs> but we put items in our junk drawers that we think that we're going to need one day. Um, and then we just sort of like rifle through them. Um, you know, that, that curtain rod that I took down three years ago, I think I jammed it in there. Um, and I need it now. Um, the, the butt end of my wrench can be used for a hammer to hit in this little nail in the wall for my picture frame. You guys have all done that. I know you have. My dad is notorious for using tools for their unintended purpose. Um, but he still gets it done. So junk drawers are, are, are different from space that's valuable to us. So our clothes get a closet, sometimes two closets. Um, our money gets a safe. Our TV gets a whole room, right? For It's like a shrine. That circle battery that fits into nothing, junk drawer, right? And you might be able to fill in the blank, you know, of what, what might be in your junk drawer. 1989, Tom Hanks played Detective Scott Turner in the motion picture comedy Turner and Hooch, right? Thank you. How many people have seen Turner and Hooch? Okay, good. I got a lot of elderly people that have seen that movie with me. Um, Turner and Hooch. Detective Turner, if you recall, is a neat freak. Um, everything is super clean, everything is super organized. He's about to retire, and he gets stuck with the slob of a dog, Hooch. And he is really sloppy. He's really drooly, he's really messy, he is not tamed. He chews on everything. He is not Turner's style. Um, something happens where Turner ends up getting stuck with this dog, if you see the movie. They need him for some crime that was committed. So they have to put, he's got to put him up in his house. So he's kind of begroning this. He does not want this awful dog in his house. Um, but he says, okay, we got to do it. It's for, you know, the, the job. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring him in. And he starts giving him a walking tour of his house, like the, as when he first brings the dog in. Remember this scene? This is the living room. This is not your room, right? This is the kitchen. This is not your room. This is the bathroom. This is not your room. This is the bedroom. This is on and on. He takes him throughout his whole house. And finally, he leads Hooch to this little pantry, you know, oversized closet of a space, um, kind of like a, mu a mud room. And he says, this is your room. <laughs> right? You remember this? Hooch was only allowed in the junk drawer. Right? He stays in there. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment your spiritual life and relationship with Christ as being a large house. So if you know Jesus Christ, and you've come to faith in Jesus, I want you to just sort of imagine that when you first come to faith in Jesus, he comes into your life. He comes into your house, right? The, the house of your life. This is the living room, Jesus. And when we first come to Christ, nothing's off limits with Jesus. This is where we play, and this is where we talk, and this is where we dance, and this is where we sing, and where we're silly. And Jesus, this is the kitchen. We cook meals and we eat dessert and we enjoy family and company. This is our kitchen, Jesus. And this is the bedroom, Jesus. This is where we rest and this is where we dream. We take Jesus upstairs and lead him to our office. This, this is the office, Jesus. This is where we study and this is where we learn and grow. And, and finally, there's another set of stairs. We lead him up to our attic. And Jesus, this is our attic. And, and here's where all we come to have adventures and remember and have memories and we love coming up here and finally we lead jesus to the back of the attic where there's this little door that leads to a little room and we say jesus this is not your room this is my room you're not allowed in there you see i think we all have a little room we all have a little room where we come to jesus and for some reason we're giving him everything except this thing and friends, that thing is our demise. Because here's what happens. We say, Jesus, you can't have this room. And over time, um, rather quick, more quick than we might, we might have expected, that, that small room just kind of bursts open and it spills over into the attic. And now Jesus isn't allowed in the attic either. And then all of a sudden, the, that attic spills down into the office and then into the kitchen and then into the bathroom and to the bedroom and everywhere else in the house. And Jesus is no longer allowed anywhere in our house. And we, but, you know, we don't want to entirely get rid of him. So where do we put him? The junk drawer. Follow me, Carol. <laughs> we put him in the junk drawer. And we take him out when we need him. To use in a fight with somebody. 
to prove a point, to make a political statement, right? He doesn't permeate any part of our lives except when it's useful. Maybe to comfort us when someone dies. Jesus in the junk drawer. Don't throw him away entirely because you might need him for something one day. He's like that small battery that we just jam him in, we shut the drawer, and we carry on enjoying the rest of our house free of Jesus. What a tragedy. And how, how often I've found myself kind of spilling over into this kind of life as a Christian because I'm just unwilling to repent of something. I'm unwilling to be generous. I'm unwilling to forgive somebody. We say, Jesus, that's not your room. That's my room. And if you're going to make an issue of it, I'm going to stick you in the drawer. Right? The king of kings, the rescuer, the lord of infinite worth in the junk drawer. Because he just sort of, we think he's just going to mess up our lives like ooch. He's going to slobber on our sofa. It's going to be different if I let him in everywhere. And friends, oh, you are absolutely right. It will be. But it's not going to be chewed up furniture. It's not going to be miserable as you might think it is. It's actually where you're going to find your happiness, your freedom, your peace. Let him in. Give it up. Shining as the prototype of the fully surrendered life to God, to the Father, providing a vision for the quality of that surrendered life is Jesus Christ, who we learned in weeks past, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, there's no room in Christ's life, there was no room, there was no nook or cranny, there was no closet his father was barred from. There was nothing too big to ask of him. Nothing was off limits with Christ. And I find all too often that in my life, there is too many things off limits. Jesus, you can have these three things, but not that thing. And if you want it, we're enemies. If you're a Christian, friends, if we're Christians, the call to the Christian life is nothing less than absolute surrender. Everything in our house is opened up. And it's the most satisfying it's the most freeing. It's the most joyful kind of life. We have been called to obey him. Remember last week, without grumbling or murmuring, to shine like stars, to be blameless and pure. And as Jesus gave the Father full access to his life, to rule his life, we see this behavior, this attitude mirrored in our text through three people that weren't God. <laughs> so might you say, well, this was the Son of God. He had a little bit more power than I do. I can't really give up that much. Well, let me present to you Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, three individuals who learned the secret of a surrendered life and the joy that follows. One um, scholar notes, the Lord so consecrated himself. And what does the word consecrate mean? means I'm yours, all of me. I'm the Lord, my, everything about my life, everything about my devotions, even everything about my desires belongs to God. That's what to be consecrated to God means. He says, the Lord so consecrated himself in obedient service to God that he poured himself, himself out for the benefit of others. They, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, so consecrated themselves to God that self was subdued in service to others. Friends, the model of Christ is full consecration to the will of the Father. And what we have in our text is three examples of men who knew how to walk with God, who knew how to sacrifice, who knew how to repent. It is not an impossible standard. It's a standard given to us by God himself and he even provides the power, if you recall, because he is the one who works in us to will and to do his good service. So work out your salvation, it says, with fear and trembling. All of our lives open to God's view, God's rebuke, God's transformation. It's a dogged determination 
to keep Jesus out of the junk drawer and give him full access to the entire house. Money, work, family, it's not hidden in a closet where Jesus has no access. All of it. Now I want to look at the fruits this morning provided in our text that are going to mark for us progress to that end. What does this kind of life look like? To borrow, I guess, the the phrase of popular uh, pastor and author Mark Dever, these are the nine marks of a healthy soul. A soul that looks like it is consecrated and is consecrated. That doesn't hide from Christ. That doesn't bar him from rooms. What does this kind of life look like? They should serve as proofs that, that we either are or are not stuffing Jesus in the junk drawer, but rather heading toward a more fully consecrated and, develop, and, and dedicated devotion to Jesus. So let's look at these. I have, I have nine of them. You see, as the title implied, nine of them. Proof one is soul care. And let's look at this in verse 19 and verse 23. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Interesting. We learn all of this character of life in Christ and the apostles to provide, to give, to sacrifice. But now we sort of trip over this verse and and Paul is saying, I have this really great leader that I'm not sending to you because I need him. <laughs> Interesting. What happened to the self-sacrifice, the self-service, the thinking, the living your lives for others? So I, I, I want to take from this passage an observation about growing devotion to the Lord, the way in which we ourselves open up all the doors to him in our house. Service to the lost and service to the church should not be at the expense of our spiritual needs. I want to explain to you what I mean by this. I'm not giving you an out of the Sunday school ministry here, (laughs) right? Because we need teachers. But what I am saying here is that Paul recognized that he needed to nurture, to feed his soul, that he needed life from the word of God and from fellowship, and he wasn't going to abandon it completely. We need to gather together for worship on Sunday morning more than we need to help someone move their couch. You see what I mean? We need to read our Bibles more than we need to give them out. You see, I I recognize that our problem a lot of times in life, in the Christian life, isn't so much over-service to Jesus, that we're handing out so many Bibles to non-believers that we're not reading our Bibles. But I do want to make the point, though, that it's that, that the work we perceive as being for Jesus in acts of service or generosity are often confused with soul care and contemplative spirituality. And what I mean by that is just because you serve poor people soup doesn't mean you don't need to pray. You, you follow? Just because you volunteer at a trunk or treat doesn't mean you don't need the word of God in your life. And friends, can I suggest to you that if you are overworking at the cost of your contemplative spiritual life, then you need to reduce the amount of work that you're doing. Now sadly, like I said, it's usually not spiritual work that, that, that takes up most of our time. It's usually most of our daily lives, our work at our secular workplaces, our families, our entertaining ourselves. All of these different things are usually what distracts us. But friends, can I just make the point that if you don't take care of your soul, your soul will not be cheered. You see? Why did Paul keep him? Why did Paul keep Timothy? I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I might be cheered. Paul's soul needed to be cheered. That tells me something, that your soul is not always cheered, that you need to pay attention to your soul. And friends, if we don't do this, it is to our peril. And the less we do it, the the less access Jesus will have to our house. See? 
So we need to pay attention to care for our soul. Jesus masterfully typified this on the many occasions when to our shock, he says, I've healed enough sick people, I'm going to go pray now. You see, a lot, of, a lot of people in our culture would judge him for that. If you have the power to heal sick and heal the dead, why not just always be doing that? Why, why stop doing that so that you can pray? It sounds selfish. But can I suggest to you that the power that we have to heal people, quote-unquote, comes from the solitude that we experience with our Savior. You see, we'll have nothing in us to give if God is not by us and with us. You see? The more care we provide our soul, the more energy and the more willingness we're actually going to have to serve others around us. So proof one, soul care. Proof two, genuine concern. Verse 20, let's read this. I have no one else like him, he's talking about um, uh, Timothy, I think here, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not of Jesus Christ. What a sad commentary of like all like everyone does that include me like the one reading this letter <laughs> everyone that looks at well, I don't think he's trying to say that no one else serves Jesus but there are few like Timothy to show genuine concern for your welfare a proof that Jesus is emerging from the shadows of your life involve a genuine concern for what Jesus is concerned for you start to care about what he cares about. Sincerely interested in what interests Christ. You see, I have a million and one things a day that I'm interested in. How much money I have in my savings account. Am I okay? Am I safe? Do I have job security? All these different things. What's going to happen to this so-and-so? Or, right, we, we have a million, I, I, you know, sometimes it's not so heavy. The cares of our lives oftentimes vastly overshadow the amount of times we spend considering the interests of Christ. Paul is praising Timothy for being interested in what interests Jesus. And then he, ex- he cites an example. He says, here's how you're interested in what, what Jesus is interested in. Because you care about, sincerely, the welfare of the church. You're, do, let's read this again. For everyone looks out for those, uh, excuse me, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He's talking to a church right now. So he's saying Timothy is genuinely concerned about the body of Christ. And when Jesus is out of the junk drawer, friends, we care about the body of Christ. Because it is his body. It is impossible to claim that Jesus is of central importance in our lives while showing little to no concern for his people. In the critical role the church plays for growth in Christ and the active role we play in the life of the church for the good of the church, for the good of the people in the church. See? It's part of our growth in Christ. The claim is that there were few like Timothy. And what was he like? Well, he was like our Lord, putting as his chief concern what is the Lord's chief concern. And see, friends, could I suggest to you this morning that if you have a secret closet, that's your chief concern. See? So Timothy, like our Lord, put his chief concern as the Lord's and it was a genuine one. You know, at times, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this or not, but we can pretend to be interested in Jesus, right? Because we're trying to fit in. So we, we talk like everyone else, and we, we say what they say. For some reason, we respect the, the people around us, and we just kind of want, we, we pretend we want an applause or we want glory or whatever. So we start to become pretentious Christians. We are pretending to be something, we got all these hidden closets and we're pretending like it's all out in the open. We can pretend to be interested in the needs of others and in what interests Jesus because we're up to something. (laughs) 
We're pseudo-selfless. We're bizarro Superman. Right? We're bizarro Christians. We, we are claiming to be Christians, but we're really in it for us. For applause or glory. Like the older brother. Remember him in the story of the prodigal son? He obeyed the father. Good boy. But why did he do it? Because he wanted a party. And he wanted his dad's money when he died. And he used obedience not to love his father, but to get his father's stuff. And friends, can I suggest to you, let us strive towards a sincere interest in what interests the father. Proof three that Jesus is out of the drunk drawer, emerging from the shadows, is sacrifice. We can see this in the following verses. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. In verse 25, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who, by the way, in verse 30, almost died for the work of Jesus, risking his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. For the gospel. The soul that is healthy in Christ, the life whose house is filled with Christ, isn't hoarding stuff for personal security or glory. Paul's willing, you've got to understand who these guys are, Timothy and Epaphroditus. These guys are commandos. These guys are Navy SEALs, right? Green Berets. These are top shelf leaders in the church. And he says, I'm, I'm here in prison and I'm going to send them both to you because they need you. Right? Now, don't get tripped up on what I said before. He needed Timothy for a little while to nurture his own soul. But as his soul was cheered, he says, okay, now it's time to send them out. And what a daring move for a leader to say, I'm going to take my top shelf leaders and I'm going I'm to make them leave. Isn't that incredible? Paul's willing to send his top guys. It's all too tempting, right, to hoard resources, to make our own thing, what we're doing, the most important thing, as if there's no other kingdom work going on in the rest of the world. I was once um, sitting down with a pastor of a large church, and I remember him getting interviewed. And he was asked how he was able to build the church so large. And you know what his answer was? I didn't send my best leaders. I kept them. (laughs) You know, at the time, I was a younger man, and I still kind of did one of these. Like, I I still kind of had the sense to know, like, no, that can't be right. (laughs) Right? Like, you know, I understand that we need to, we we are building the kingdom here, and we need leadership here, right? But this this attitude of we're just going to hang on, we're going to hoard, Oh, save us from the snare of leading in fear or being short-sighted. The next proof that Jesus is emerging from the junk drawer is that we are gladly, number four, we are gladly self-aware. I really like this one. It says in verse 22, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. As a son... With a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. No ego in Timothy. Timothy gladly taking the subordinate position to Paul. Now, it's no secret if you've read any part of the Bible, any part of the New Testament, that Paul was not Timothy and Timothy was not Paul. They both loved Christ. That's clear. But they were clearly different sorts of people, different personalities, different giftings and skill sets. And a lot of scholars contend that Timothy was maybe a touch insecure, maybe more timid, where Paul was more of a type A leader and visionary. First Timothy chapter 4, it, Paul tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you. Apparently he was doing that. He was kind of taking like, unnecessary critique or, from, from people in the church because of his youth. So Paul seemed to kind of be more of an assertive visionary, while Timothy was maybe like, more of a support, a comrade. He's called his son and his servant. Friends, uh, here's what I want to take away from this. If we're demanding a certain status, a certain position, due to its perceived benefit or glory, we miss the point entirely. Do you understand this? In other words, so often in life, we're trying to be like somebody else because we respect them. 
for some reason, a, a dad, a teacher, a pastor, a missionary, whoever it might be, we're trying to be like them. We're trying to emulate them. But at the end of the day, don't we just kind of know that at times it's futile? We're not them. God has gifted us differently. We don't lead the same way. We don't think the same way. And life becomes painful. It becomes a struggle. God has called people to take leadership positions, and God has called others to support that leader, to be, to, to be a help to them, an encouragement to them. See? It's not a lesser role. God doesn't applaud the faithful deacon. Uh, excuse me. God doesn't applaud the faithful pastor more loudly than he applauds the faithful deacon. See, that's what we, sometimes we think. We get hung up on these things, and we think as if, well, you know, I need the mic and I need a spotlight because I think that, that the past Pastor Kyle's going to get more jewels in heaven because of what he's doing. And might I suggest to you that the faithful person is what God rewards no matter what it is. I don't think that my job is any better than any of yours. I don't think that it's a higher calling. I think we all have a high calling as servants of Jesus Christ. And our high calling is to obey him with how he's gifted us. Amen? Um, you might have heard of the Hasidic tale of Rabbi Zusia. One day, he says, when I stand before God, God will not ask me why I was not Moses. He will ask me why I was not Zusia. See? Didn't, Timothy didn't feel the need to be Paul. He walked in the call God had given to him gladly. And friend, if you know what I'm talking about, you know the burden of trying to be something you're not. So just shed it. Take it off. And, and by the way, that's when Jesus starts coming out of those dark rooms, that, that junk drawer in your life. Because you're finally telling, you're finally allowing him to have rule and reign over your life to be who he's made you to be, and not somebody else. Finally, uh, not finally, excuse me, proof five, um, we are properly prioritized the fifth mark of a healthy soul, we are properly prioritized. This is in verse 22. He has served with me in the work of the gospel. In something very specific, his service was directed toward. He was properly prioritized. He had a singular vision, and that was the gospel. And you say, well, I'm not a gospel preacher. I'm a nanny. I'm a nurse. I work at Amazon. Is our Amazon brother, right? So how do I, how, how is this a work of the gospel? Well, friend, do you know that to live is Christ? And to live is to be doing whatever it is that you're doing for his glory. And that you have a gospel testimony no matter what you're doing. You have it as a deacon, you have it as a pastor, you have it as a bus driver, and you have it as a teacher. So shine the glory of the gospel. You see, be properly prioritized. Recognize that God has called you not simply to perform a function in life, a job, but to preach the gospel through that job. To demonstrate the beauty of Christ, the light of Jesus through it. You see? He has served with me in the work of the gospel. You have unbelievable opportunity to share the gospel with people I will never have access to because of where you are in your life. There, you probably hear more swearing in one, in one day than I hear in a year, <laughs> right? Because of your workplace. And you say, oh, this is so frustrating. I wish I was around Christians all day. Really? Do you, don't wish that. Because God has made you a missionary. He has brought you people that don't know Jesus, and they could be sitting here with you right now. They could be in your house, eating your meatloaf, and wondering who it is that you serve. See? We are missionaries, friend. He has, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. And here's what we have to think of as a church about our lives as the local church and our mission. We serve together in the work of the gospel. Period. That's what our lives is all about. We need to challenge each other, to spur each other on with the gospel because the gospel is not only the message that saves lost people, it's the message that saves us every single day from the trap of thinking that we need something more than Jesus. The gospel reminds us that we don't need the guy that just dumped us. The gospel reminds us that we don't need to be married. 
The gospel reminds us that Jesus is the, the, the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, so I don't need the job I think I need. See? Amen? Amen. So coming to, letting Jesus, having Jesus full access, it means you're properly prioritized. And being properly prioritized, it means that we are gospel-centered, gospel-motivated, and every part of our life is saturated with the gospel. Number six, the next proof that Jesus is emerging from the junk drawer. We have open hands in life. Verse 23, I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. Interesting. What's Paul mean here? I think he means that he's living his life open-handedly. He's saying, I don't know what's going to happen. He's in prison right now, if you recall. And he's saying, I don't really know what's going to happen to me. I could be in prison for a very long time, or I could be free. I could die. I could be executed. I don't really know what's going to happen to me. He wasn't sure. And what's most stunning, if you read this passage, I don't know if you guys noticed this. I, I noticed this was to me like a, like a spear in the head because it was so glaring to me. There was a lot of anxiety language in this, in this passage. His, his soul was pressed down and I'm anxious and I need to be cheered. And there's all this kind of heaviness. And I'm thinking to myself, it doesn't surround his circumstance. He's in jail and he's not anxious about the manacles around his wrists. He's anxious about the church. He's concerned about what God is... Con- that, that means to me to live life open-handedly is to, to, to know that God is in control of our lives and the lot of our lives falls on him. So that whether we live or whether we die, God be glorified in our life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So whatever happens, I don't know what's going to happen to me, and that's okay. Nothing's off limits, not even our lives. If God wants to take my life, and I die of this disease, or if I die of a a martyr's death, then glory to Jesus. To live as Christ, to die as gain. You see, sometimes I think our prayers are misdirected. Oh God, save me from this jam that I'm in. That's so often how we pray. So often how I pray. You know, I I hope that as I grow as a Christian, I can sincerely pray more like this. Oh God, help me to accept any curveball you throw for your glory. And if it gives you more glory that I'm suffering, or that I don't end up in the place I was hoping to end up, or wanted to end up, I pray that I would bear it gladly for your glory and for your sake. Now we grieve... Healthy souls grieve loss. Healthy souls even desires certain things out of life. There's nothing wrong with that. But friends, at the end of the day, we have open hands. Whether we live or whether we die. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Number seven, we are confident, verse 24. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Confident in the Lord. Not in wealth, not in relationships or work, but in the Lord. All too many of God's Christian, Christians or children live with chronic fear and believe that there's really no other way to live our lives but under that fear. To be driven and terrorized and tyrannized by fear is certainly a, a miserable thing, and I know that all too well. But there's another way, and it's a gospel way. For I am confident in the Lord. You see, friends, we lose our confidence the more rooms in our house God is not allowed in because we're basing the joy and happiness of our lives behind whatever's in that room and how fragile that is, how uncertain that is. We're, we're basing our security, our hopes, our dreams on things that are created rather than the creator himself. So when our affections are set off of his creation and placed on the creator, It is set on something unmovable, unchangeable, the eternal God. Isn't that incredible? Confident in the Lord. So often in life, isn't it true that we feel confidence and joy? You know, we we go to the mall, right? And we stop at our favorite clothing store. 
and we buy something new and nice. And you know how you feel the next morning when you wake up and you put on those duds? You feel a little more confident, don't you? Right? I think I'm going to ask for a raise today. <laughs> right? Something new clothes. Confident in my clothes. <laughs> right? You know, my, I, I, I just got this check I wasn't expecting. I got, you know, $10,000 more in my savings account. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to go buy something. Right? You feel like you get this kind of like surge of energy, don't you? And, and this burst of self-confidence. And it's so material. It's so fleeting because, you know, three weeks later we still have the same amount of money and we're depressed again aren't we? Three weeks later, those clothes aren't looking so new anymore. Friends, confidence in the Lord is a staying confidence. It's a lasting confidence because Jesus doesn't get holes in his knees. Right? Jesus doesn't run out. He's always there. Confident in the Lord. Number eight, appropriately anxious. We are appropriately anxious. This is interesting because I just, you know, there are passages in Philippians that says, be anxious for nothing. (laughs) But let's read some of this. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon that I may be cheered. Apparently he wasn't cheered. For he longs for you, this is Epaphroditus now, and he is distressed. And then in verse 28, I'm eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and that I may have less anxiety. So, a healthy soul is not anxious, but is confident. And a healthy soul is anxious and is confident. (laughs) Let me explain to you what I mean here. It's clear that certain things were causing Epaphroditus and Timothy and Paul anxiety. Paul says in chapter 4, like I said, be anxious for nothing. But here, he's anxious. He's distressed. Now, what is anxiety? Anxiety happens when there's a desired outcome. You want something, but it's uncertain, right? It's basically what I, there's this tension. There's a good anxiety. You know what that is? It's like a kid at Christmas time. You know, he's anxious to open those Christmas presents, isn't he? But it's not a bad anxiety. It's a good anxiety. I think we're all more familiar with that bad anxiety, though. What's going to happen to my mom or to my sister? What's going to happen to me? Is that person, like, I really like this girl or this boy. Do they like me back? I mean, like, what's going to happen here? Are they going to accept me or reject me? See, these are the uncertainties of life. Will I get that job? Might I suggest to you that a mark of spiritual health is directed anxiety? Friends, you know what this means? It should bother... Things should bother us. So when Paul says be anxious for nothing, what he means is don't live in chronic fear and unbelief that God isn't in control, you see? But, but things should bother us. It should bother us if we have friends or family that don't know Christ. It should bother us if there are divisions in the church. It should create anxiety in our hearts for us to think that one of us might Choose sin over Jesus. You see what I mean? It should should distress us. When Jesus is not restricted, excuse me, if there is no anxious concern for the things that interest Christ, then I might suggest that Jesus is in the junk drawer. If anxiety becomes chronic and leads us to anger toward God and unbelief, like I said a moment ago, then that's an anxiety of a different sort. But when Jesus is not restricted in our lives, we begin to labor for his cause. We carry on for his concern. The health of the church weighs on us. The health health of each other weighs on us. Listen to what Paul said in another place. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, besides all of this, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? 
You see, friends, what he's describing for us is the healthy Christian life, not just for the pastor, but for anyone God has called to be his. We should inwardly burn when a brother in Christ turns to sin. It should bother us. We should pray for them. We should plead for them. See what I mean? We shouldn't say, well, you know, he made his choice. Let's go to McDonald's. (laughs) We should be on our knees. There's this healthy anxiety, this healthy burden that is put on us as believers. And friends, that is a sign of health, not unhealth. That is a sign that Jesus is reigning in your life because you're worried about the spiritual life of your brother or sister, not about your bank account. See? And finally, I kind of mentioned this already, but we are un... The the healthy believer is unpretentious. Verse 27, Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me from sorrow upon sorrow. So, another time in my life I was asked, um, I actually asked, this was a different um, leader I knew, if a pastor should ever share or express feelings of discouragement or sorrow, things like this, or difficulty in their life with members of the church. And without blinking and without hesitation, he said, absolutely not. (laughs) Keeping up an image, uh, a public persona, because if you perceive in me weakness, well then what will that mean? You might all leave, right? You know, I I want to present strength and power and confidence. And that's what I give you. And that's, you know, friends, it's not just pastors. We do that to each other. It's not all of us do that. I don't, want to, I don't want people to see under my skin. I don't want people to see my soul. And you know what the consequence is? Sin and death. The, the Bible knows no such life in the Christian life. It is not a life of hiding. It is not a, it's not a, a life of pretense. It is a life of confession. It is a life of transparency. You see, Paul is saying, I didn't want sorrow upon, I didn't want this to break me. You know what he was telling the church? You know, you could break me. You could press, this could press me down. I could be miserable. He, he didn't present himself as, you know, like, you know, General MacArthur and nothing will get past me and my strength and my muscles, right? Because I'm so strong and I always make the right, you know, friends, he wasn't saying this, he was saying, I am weak, I am, you know, I, I, I sin, I fail. Now, I'm not trying to suggest to us that health means we just blab all our stuff to everyone with a, with a heartbeat, <laughs> okay? Obviously, that's not wise. But it, it does mean that we have trusted brothers and sisters in Christ that know us, that know our secrets. They know what's in the closet. You see, friends, sometimes the first step for you to have Jesus out of the junk drawer is to just tell a brother in Christ, there is this thing in my life and I have never been willing to let it go. There is this sin, I have never been willing to let it go. And I need help and I need prayer. Sometimes that's just the first step. You know, you know I, I, I made that analogy where Jesus is everywhere but the, but the closet, and then all of a sudden, a couple of years go by, and he's nowhere but the drawer, <laughs> right? So you want, to, you want him to start him, start him everywhere again? Well, start confessing your sin. Start confessing to brothers and sisters in Christ, living transparently with them. That's when Jesus, you know, that's when we start, like, oh, okay, this isn't so hard. God is gracious, and now we, we have afforded ourselves the opportunity to lean on the strength of brothers and sisters in Christ. When you hide your feelings and when you hide your sins, you forfeit the church's opportunity to love you, to pray for you, to hold you up. Amen? So let's come out. We need to come out. And towering over us as I close as examples of this victorious Christian living are these three flesh and blood characters who modeled this life. These were sinners. These were tempted. These were hungry. You know, in, when I was writing this, I made a typo and I noticed it this morning. I put they were hangry. <laughs> that works too, doesn't it? 
They were hungry. They were weak. And they were anxious. And we're in good company. But friends, it's time to let Jesus out of the junk drawer. That in spite of our limitations, we can continue forward progress in the Christian life. They did it. So can you. So friend, come on. Let's get him out of the junk drawer. Do you say to him in nine ways yes, but in three ways no? Are there rooms he's not allowed in? Give that room to Christ. Let's pray. God, some of us in this room this morning don't even know you at all. And maybe some of this message perhaps was a little bit confusing about the Christian life and how to live the Christian life and grow in the Christian life. And maybe there's some here saying, I don't even know what that even means. What does it even mean to be a Christian? Well, friend, maybe you know this. Maybe you know all of the the rooms in your house and how your life has gone and how you need to be transformed. Your first step is that Jesus would come in, that you would trust him with your life, that you would accept that you've sinned against God, the one person who loves you the most and wants you the most. He's holy and righteous and good, but the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's not in the house at all. And friend, can I suggest to you that what you need this morning is not more money or power and not resolution even to some conflict. You need Jesus. You need Jesus to forgive your sin, to die for them for you in your place. Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago for sinners like you and for sinners like me. And the Bible says that when you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, they are never remembered anymore. And you are adopted in His family and you are secure forever and given life. Come to Christ, friend. Have Him in your house, the house of your life. Give Him full access. And if that's you, you can... Pray out, call out to God right now and say, God, I'm a sinner. I'm turning from my sin and I trust that Christ's death on the cross was for me. You are my Lord and my Savior and all I've ever needed. Friend, follow Jesus. If that's you, if God is turning your heart for the first time, I would just implore you to come and talk to me or someone Um, around you that might know Christ already, that we can pray with you and encourage you and rejoice with you. And God, for the rest of us who know you, I pray, Lord, that we would labor to give Jesus all the rooms of our house. In Jesus' name, amen.